Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. Introducing Carissa Green Industries. Let's get ready to launch. episode, I caught up with Dr. Lydia Kostopoulos to talk about her area of deep expertise, the intersection of people, strategy, technology, education, and national security. Her experience across U.S. national and international bodies is focused on examining the strategic and ethical implications of new technologies within defense. An amazing communicator on the battlefronts of real-world security, it was a privilege talking with her. Lydia, welcome. It's been maybe two years since I think I last spoke to you, maybe longer. So I really did want to have another conversation and have a podcast, have a chat about what you've been up to, what you're doing. I noticed that you've uh, relocated. So I'm keen to talk about your career. What have you been up to the last two years? Wow. Yeah, so much has happened in the past two years. Um, I was at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., where I was uh, with the College of Information and Cyberspace, and I was doing strategic engagement, uh, trying to help spread awareness about what the college does and the important work it does for the strategic level of military education and cyber. And then after that, I recently relocated to Berlin, and I'm working at the ESMT school, which is the number one business school in Germany. And in there, there's this institute called the Digital Society Institute, and it's forward thinking and looking to see how new technologies are affecting our society. So that's where I'm at. And Berlin is such a happening city. It's incredible. Now, when you said Washington, D.C., when you said spreading awareness, what were you doing to try and spread that awareness? Um, so we had specific uh, stakeholders in mind. So it was people in the government who we wanted to serve and make sure they understood that our education was made available and what kinds of topics we were covering, but also get feedback from them to say, hey, what types of topics do you think we should cover that we're not covering? So it was more about trying to improve what it is we were offering. Oh, okay, got you. Okay, cool. So you've moved from there into Berlin, and I'm aware that you're a researcher there. Can you talk to me a little bit more about what you're what you're doing there day to day? Um, so day to day, there is. No day that's the same, really. Um, There's so many activities that are going on here. And in terms of technology, the the social scene is exploding. So there's always some sort of workshop or some sort of conference or activity. So I'm meeting all kinds of people that are involved in various different spectrums of technology, whether it be the security side or the social side or the privacy side. But um, so every day is different. But in terms of my research, um, the first few months I really focused on uh, an article I was putting together around AI due diligence. And the purpose of that research was to broaden the mindset of readers around artificial intelligence and due diligence. So if we think about cybersecurity uh, five, six years ago, I think in terms of the executive level awareness or managerial level awareness, we're at that same 
place, but for AI. And so what I mean by that is before people were like, okay, well, what is this cyber stuff? How, what do I need to know as a, as a leader or as somebody who's overseeing things at, in a business environment or even in a military environment? And then eventually the conversation became more sophisticated where um, we had more CISOs and where the C-suite understood the impact and the importance of cyber. And then mm-hmm. with AI, it's it's really the exact same thing right now where it's like, okay, I know AI is important, but what does it mean for my business? And people are looking at it really from the financial aspect and the efficiency aspect, which is really good. However, there are also the more ethical aspects that are also relevant in, even for a business case. And so that research kind of puts that together. And I can outline kind of the six points of it if you want. Yeah, absolutely. Please go ahead. So um, basically, it's uh, artificial intelligence, due diligence, and quality control items. And these are the things that I think that leadership should be aware of as they plan to incorporate artificial intelligence into their organization. Do you think they are aware of it, though? No, it's still quite premature. Um, Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you the six points, and you tell me if you think that people are aware of them. (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, no, I mean, like, no, I'd really like to know. So, like, for example, one is overconfidence in data. That can be a problem. Uh, mm-hmm. Two is more data is not the solution. Uh, three is adversarial AI, which is um, like kind of AI hacking, kind of. Uh, hollowing out of decision making, so losing human agency. Algorithmic regimes and the unknown unknowns. Right. I would say, from a democratic point of view, not that it's an even eye on this call, but, uh, I mean, the people I speak to, I would say no, uh, mm-hmm. especially in Australia. I can't speak on the rest behalf of the, the other parts of the world, but I would say probably no mm-hmm. because it's quite an area that's advanced. I think people are still trying to get up, like you spoke about five, six years ago. I think people are still trying to focus on that. So I think mm-hmm. you guys are obviously well ahead of what, what's happening, <laughs> but no. And I think that's interesting. And, and this is the reason why I wanted to talk to you, because I think that perhaps CISOs are not getting the information they need at a synthesized level. It might be either too detailed or it sort of goes, maybe it's too high level. But that's why I wanted you to focus more on that, because this is what you're doing day to day. Yeah. Um, well, I can expand on these if you'd like. Sure. Absolutely. So, uh- For overconfidence, that's something that I think uh, CISOs are going to relate to because in cyber there was uh, something similar in terms of like, can we trust the screens that we see? Can we trust what we see? So this is a a data security element. And uh, if we think about uh, Mark Goodman's book, Future Crimes, where he talks about the cybersecurity state of affairs, this was a few years ago, and he had a really interesting chapter called um, In Screens We Trust. And what he was trying to reiterate there is that when it comes to data manipulation, uh, you may not know that the data has been manipulated and you just trust what you see on your screen. Mm -hmm. So with artificial intelligence, the same concept in terms of we have an overconfidence in the result of what the algorithm produced. And it doesn't, and we need to challenge that idea and say, how much confidence should we have in the data? So uh, I was just recently at the World Government Summit in Dubai, and there was the president of Viome, which is a microbiome um, company, and you send them samples, and they tell you all about the DNA of your microbiome. 
and uh, it's it's using AI and all of that. And I have tried that out before. And so I asked him, I said, could you please tell me about the confidence that you have in your algorithm? And uh, this is a public question. And um, he went around the question, didn't fully answer. But what I was trying to get at is I don't think anything's perfect. And that's fine. But I just would like to know how do you, is there an 80% confidence? So for example, with 23andMe, which is another uh, DNA company, but they do the DNA of the body. They tell you like if they think that you have whatever disease, they'll tell you we have uh, high confidence, low confidence. And so that gives you a little bit more of an idea. Nothing's perfect, but it, it gives you a more informed idea about what the data is saying. And so when we say when I say here overconfidence in in AI, it's we should put a number on that and say you know what this is probably seventy percent accurate or we've seen error rates between I don't know five and ten percent, but just to have an idea so when we see it we don't like fully one hundred and ten percent say this is it. So that's the uh, overconfidence in um, data. And then um, some people keep saying, you know, more data is the solution, just give it more data. But sometimes uh, the algorithm needs to be tweaked to compensate mm -hmm. for data that in its existence will always be biased, no matter how much data you put in. And the best example for this is um, women's CVs and their salaries. Well, there is okay. a bias. So women's salaries, at least in the U.S., tend to be lower than men's. And um, their careers are also a little bit different uh, if we look at it as a whole. And there's a lot to do with discrimination in the workplace, but also what happens when women have children. It's not the same as men. Women tend to um, drop out of the workforce or don't participate as, as fully as men do when they have a child. And yes. so if the data, which represents this... Um, were to look at that, they would say, okay, well, women make less than, if your gender is female, then you, your salary is lower. If your gender happens to be man, your, your salary is higher. There's no more amount of data that's going to be put in that's going to change that. Mm -hmm. The only thing that can change this in the circumstance is really um, tweaking the algorithm to compensate for the biased data that comes from uh, a social situation. So sometimes giving more data is not the solution. Right. And do you think are people just focusing on that because they're they're not, I guess, representing clear, actionable intelligence? That's potentially what's lacking. Like, there's just so much of it going on. Um, not sure what you meant by that. There's so much of what going on, and what do you mean, actionable intelligence? So. There's all this data that we can see, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. people are not representing it in ways that are actionable. Is that correct? Because just, there's just all this data flowing around, but then are they actually putting it in ways that actually make sense? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I, I do think that they are putting it in ways that make sense. It's not. Uh, it's definitely not gloom and doom. So I do realize that the, AI, the looking at AI due diligence, it may seem quite negative, but um, it's actually not. Um, so, for example, in when it comes to health, there's a lot of great advances and there are practical uses. And um, one of them is looking at iris scans. And to give you an example, a, a human ophthalmologist will see 40,000 eyes in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. But an artificial intelligence with its data da database and all that will be able to see millions. Got you. So there's there's a difference in terms of what patterns an artificial intelligence algorithm can see um, with so much more data compared to a human eye. 
And so more connections can be made with artificial intelligence that a human cannot make just because of the sheer volume of data that uh, an AI can see. Sure. Okay. Now let's focus on, so that was the second point. Let's circle back on the third, the third point out of the six. Okay. So the third point is adversarial AI. Mm-hmm. And uh, adversarial AI is quite interesting. Um, basically, it's an AI having blind spots is how I want to put it. And uh, so when the scientists and engineers create their algorithms, they they make them so that they function as intended and as expected, and they can even control for potential errors that could arise. So, for example, um, if there's like a stop sign and there's like a tree that's kind of by it, they try to control for that and they try to feed that, that kind of data inside. However, well, there are okay. times where pe- people would like to deliberately confuse the algorithm. And there's some research that have tested this. And um, one of them put graffiti. So this is a research. It's not like out in, this, in the wild. No, no, no. Um, so yep. there's, um, they did graffiti on road signage where they put uh, the words love on top of the word stop in a stop sign and then hate at the bottom of the word stop in the stop sign. And um, the algorithm wasn't able to recognize the stop sign when the words love and hate were written on top of it, but very, very clearly. And this was done by the Berkeley Artificial Intelligence Research. Um, they they have the, the full report on their website if anyone's interested in that. And then there was another fun one um, that was a 3D printed turtle, which okay. fooled a neural net into believing that it was a rifle. So these, oh. I, I talked to um, somebody over at MIT who's looking into cybersecurity and artificial intelligence, and he believes that um, this research actually is a waste of time and it's not very practical. And um, I think, you know, time will tell on that. And, and he feels that these are circumstances that most likely will not arise because he said that you really need to have the database to be able to manipulate it. So the average person then in his line of thought will not have the database to be able to manipulate it. So therefore, this is not possible. So I think more deliberation around people who are working with the nitty gritty of these need to to come out and talk more about this. Um, And for us to really fully understand how much of a risk in terms of percentage, we really need to be aware of this. So sort of generating more awareness about the, I guess, the research, the findings. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I mean, at the end of the day, I think that um, the same with uh, cybersecurity, you know, it's advanced persistent threats will always be important and they will evolve in different ways to use different techniques. And so it's still too early to tell with um, AI how they're going to do it. But the adversarial AI could be one technique. Got you. Okay. Now, what do you believe the industry should be paying attention to more than they probably are at the moment? So um, that is actually the fourth point. So to me, I think the industry should be paying attention to the loss of human agency. And uh, what it's another way to, to term it is the hollowing out of decision making. And, and what that really is, is that as AI becomes more accurate, and woven into operational processes, it will increasingly make autonomous decisions that human feel 
comfortable to delegate to AI. And in other cases, it will assist, right? So some cases you're like, look, I am pretty confident that AI knows how to deal with retinal scans for this particular issue. I don't need to do it. In other issues, um, I don't feel confident. I want to have its recommendation or predictive analysis, and then a human will decide, right? However, uh, if we see it this way, AI becomes a decision-making infrastructure, which is okay, but we also need to understand that humans need to be part of this as well. And my concern, and I think that the, when you ask me what should the industry be paying attention to, is making sure that when we delegate decision-making out of from humans to machines, that it is appropriate and deliberate. So I use those words very, very intentionally. So appropriate because there are some circumstances where it's it, it shouldn't be done. And then deliberate because we need to be actually making that decision. You might say, well, of course we'd be making that decision. Why wouldn't we? But mm -hmm. I think we could have AI creep where it's like it just kind of happens where all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, well, it's it's doing this so well. Let's just let that do it without a deliberation to say, are we ready to let go of decision making here and here and here instead of kind of letting it evolve? And with artificial intelligence, it's not something that's all of a sudden going to happen today or tomorrow. People keep saying, yeah, you know, we keep hearing about it, but it hasn't really affected our lives. The fact mm -hmm. of the matter is, is that AI is something that's going to be happening little by little. And then finally, when it's all over the place in a, in a positive way, I mean, it, we won't realize until all of a sudden we're like, wait a minute, everything was seamless and everything was AI. And People don't realize how much artificial intelligence they have in their daily life when they think about um, Siri or Alexa or even using Google Maps and Google Maps deciding for you where you're going to go and how you're going to go. Exactly. So little things like this, we've already automated a lot of our lives or delegated our decision making to artificial intelligence. And um, the same thing with cybersecurity, when we say, have we done a failover? Um, is it possible if, you know, the Internet went down or if our servers went down, are we able to recover from that? Are we able um, to continue business as usual? So the same thing with artificial intelligence. Uh, so I think the industry should be paying attention to that as well. I don't think that... Um, industry has done an incredible job at saying if the internet shut off or if their uh, data servers have not worked, are they able to move into paperwork or are they able to use other means to be able to deliver? Mm -hmm. In some circumstances, obviously it's not possible given a certain business model, but in other circumstances, um, one would hope that there is some sort of backup mechanism that has been trialed and tested um, that can continue to function even if there's some sort of issue. So the same thing with artificial intelligence. Is it possible for humans to continue making decisions if, for whatever reason, the algorithm was contaminated or hacked or uh, no longer worked as expected? So the same way if we think about roads in our daily life, how many times have we delegated our um, decision making on the roads to Google to the point where we couldn't get to a location by ourselves? Yes, I'm definitely a big Google Maps fan, so I just... I wonder, though, if now it'll be like a thing, like a fun thing where it's like, we're going to give you a map and you have to find yourself at this location. Good luck. You know, like it'll be a novelty, a game. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I, I wasn't bad at it. But now I'm just like, dri like driving in Sydney. Sydney's so massive. I'm just thinking like, I don't even know how I would drive from where I am to the other side of Sydney. That would be very, very difficult. 
the beauty is the convergence here because you've got satellite and then you've also got a network. So you've got a network of people who are feeding in data, not intentionally, but mm -hmm. uh, telling you, not you, but your, your algorithm that's being represented on your phone where there's traffic. And so it's being rerouted. And so there's many elements right. here that are that are working together. In no, that's right. No, absolutely right. So after all of these interesting points, where do you see the future of AI with security? Now, I know you spoke before about letting, letting uh, you know, AI sort of make the decisions for humans. That's one element. But where do you see moving forward? Because, I mean, there's so many different views and opinions out there. But considering you're doing this day to day, I'd love to get your thoughts on, on, on the industry. Well, I think that um, AI in terms of security, it's, I mean, is just going to be quite similar to AI in other realms, whether it's, it's healthcare or energy, and it's going to augment existing capabilities. Because, mm -hmm. so I, I think a very, very simple example, which I think people can relate to is the calculator. So like before people didn't have a calculator and they did everything by hand. And yeah. then it was like, oh, my gosh, the calculator is going to replace all these mathematicians and all these accountants. They're going to lose their jobs. And it's like, no, actually, the calculator just made them do their jobs a lot faster. So, yes, got you. That's so I think the same thing with, with AI. It's not going to I mean, there are some jobs that are going to be rendered, let's say, um, potentially obsolete. And time will tell which ones those are. But I think that it's going to create new jobs. The thing is, is that both on the employee side and the employer side, everybody needs to be more agile and, and more open-minded about how they can quickly adapt to new technologies that can make a difference in their work, in their particular workplace. No, you're absolutely right because they, you know, everyone freaks out going, oh, we're going to automate ourselves out of a job and all that type of stuff. But you're so right because, I mean, before Google and Facebook and all these big tech companies were around, like people still had jobs before then, but then mm -hmm. they just, oh, it's just a new, it's a, it's a new era. It's a new way of doing things. And I don't think that anyone can sort of sit there with a crystal ball and predict exactly what's going to happen, but it's going to evolve. Mm -hmm. And people well, and said the same you... thing about the loom as well. Mm -hmm. um, I can also give you another example that I think is very relatable, and that is travel agencies. So before, mm -hmm. you would literally drive to an office and see another human, which is also a nice experience, and you say, hey, this is what I want. And the human would manually go through a database to find you the best flight and the different options. Now, okay. all you have to do is put it inside your Google search, the two cities you want to go to, and then it'll already pop up in the search all the different options you have, how many hours it takes to get there, what the transiting time is, what the cost is, what the airline is. And that was all automated. And then not only that, you in some of the online travel agency websites, you can even put in a little reminder where it says, I'll email you if the price dropped for the flight that you're looking at. And so... AI has definitely been able to transform that aspect in, in providing mm -hmm. different uh, options at a, at a faster speed and all that. But does it mean that it takes away the travel agent? Absolutely not. What that means is that travel agents, if you're dealing with a human travel agent, what they're offering you is much more. What they're offering you is a concierge-like experience for your travel, where they're giving you advice on experiences that you'd like to have, um, be it going and seeing waterfalls or canoeing in wildlife. But just it'd be, it's more custom where a human element comes in to provide you advice and feedback. 
You, well, you're an optimist. Uh, I am. <laughs> not Skynet. Do you see anything that might turn your thinking around, perhaps? Um, so, I mean, there are definitely negative things. So, okay. I do also yep. think that cyber attacks will um, have a new twist. So if we just kind of try to think of with the information that we have today. So there right now I know in, in Carnegie Mellon they're doing a lot of research to see how artificial intelligence can help bolster cybersecurity. And I mean there's still it's not perfect just yet. They're they're still conducting research, but uh, in a briefing I attended at Congress that uh, they spoke at, they were saying that they're trying to use AI to identify types of malware quickly, but also try to do predictive analysis in, ter in determining when and how malware will evolve. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's the kind of work that they were working on. So just as we can see that work for good, I could also be used those principles to work for bad, whereby potentially um, code could be scanned automatically to try and find different vulnerabilities that could be potentially automated to be tested. Um, time will tell, but I think that there there is room for AI to do um, good and evil in, in that domain. But I I'm so people when we talk about this, people say, yeah, but like then then how are we supposed to defend against all these things? And I said the way we always have. I mean, there's a, a plethora of communities in information security that are sharing information and that are trying to combat the, the many different cyber threats that exist today, which are many, 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 especially with the Internet of Things. So I do think that just as it was in the past, it will be in the future and people will find ways to combat and address these new threats that arise. So it sounds like things will pivot to machines versus ma machine entirely. Do you see it like War Games the movie where there's like a, a truce called due to a zero-sum game being unlikely? I'm thinking about that. That's um, a deep question, I think. And I don't think it has to be zero-sum. I don't think that one person's gain has to be someone else's loss. And the reason is because things are advancing so fast and um, fun everyday statistic for everyone. The kids of today that are like, let's say five, six or whatever, will be doing jobs that don't exist today. So, I mean, if we think back to, for example, 2005, uh, Facebook just had come out in 2004. Slowly people were getting on it. No one could have ever thought, huh? 2004, like it doesn't feel like that long ago, but it feels like Facebook has been forever. Like right, but it, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, <laughs> not really. When you call it like that, so Facebook just started then, and people were getting on it, and no one at that time would have thought that somebody could make a living just doing Facebook social media ads or yes, posting. you're right. And now it's a huge industry, Influences. and there are boutique companies that do extremely well. We're talking in the millions. And no one would have thought when Instagram came out that some people could make thousands of dollars on a post. Absolutely. No, you're right. And again, that's kind of like my loom mentioned that I said earlier, like displacement of jobs, not loss of jobs. And I think everyone's is going around like, oh, we're going to lose their jobs. But it's because the future really isn't written yet. But again, like you said, they will open up and that'll evolve. 
But what that means is we need to evolve. And what that means is that employers need to recognize that employees can cannot just continue business as usual and be ready for the skills of tomorrow. So I think that employers need to also step up and say, we need to offer this training that's needed. Otherwise, people are going, the, the people who do want to improve are going to, to go and find ways to do so and then potentially eventually leave. And those who don't want to improve will stay. And that's those are both issues. So employers need to, to take action on that. And there's one example in the U.S. Uh, AT&T has done that. Mm-hmm. They're a telecom provider. And they looked into their future, let's say, 20 years down the road. And they said, OK, so in 20 years, we don't know everything that's going to happen. But we know that there's going to be a lot of conversions around IoT, virtual reality, augmented reality, um, 5G, et cetera. Are we ready for all of this? And the answer to themselves was no. And they're like, okay, great. What are the skills that we need? And they outlined the skills that they need. And they said, do we have these inside our organization? And the answer was no. And so they said, great. So how are we going to fix this problem? And they decided to offer free education and partnered with Udacity, which is an online um, university or an online school. Mm-hmm. And they provide uh, courses to their employees. And so the way this the system works is they said to their employees, you can be an AT&T employee for life. No problem. However, you need to continuously upgrade your scale, your skills and uh, be ready for the things that the organization needs as the future evolves. Sure. And so. For example, each person would have certain things that they would need to improve. So, for example, if you were a social media person, then it would when when the time came, it would be like, okay, well, you need to now upskill yourself to augmented reality social media. I mean, we're not there today, but eventually we will be there. And so then that person would have to do, for example, that course in augmented reality and virtual reality and social media and upskill themselves. Now, if the person chose not to, um, they would eventually see themselves out of the organization. It was so that the the policy was like this. Here's education for you. Um, If you take it, you can be an employee for life and you can contribute to the future of this company. If not, then that would be a little bit difficult. And so the catch, though, is that while the education is for free, it cannot be done during work time. So people would have to do it outside of their work time. So that's one model. But I I do think more companies are going to find similar models that will work for them. Um, And I think we're going to see some organizations who are going to say one day a week is for training, for example. And or, you know, every month there's going to be some sort of skill or people are going to do sabbaticals. One thing that India has done, which I think is incredible, they announced it last year, Um, the government has asked the private sector um, to do a certain policy that would be corporate social responsibility, but uh, started by the government. And they asked the private sector to donate some of their skilled people to do a sabbatical, one year sabbatical paid for by the company. And that those employees would go to the rural countrysides of India and they would provide um, different types of skills and knowledge to help spread that across the country. Mm-hmm. And so that's it's a different type of upskilling, but it, I thought that was a really nice one to mention of how to spread knowledge across the nation. No, absolutely. We've got that KBI too. Fridays are 99% focused on skilling up because we always want to be ahead of the curve, not only uh, for our own benefit, but for our clients as well. And I think that what I'm hearing from what you're saying is definitely that behavioral change and 
definitely from from my perspective and the amount of people that I speak to all over the globe and within Australia, there's definitely a lack there. So I definitely I believe that people who are listening need to really think about that uh, and take the same approach that AT&T ha- have gone about that. I, I think that's a really awesome way to, to get people to feel motivated and feel that there's a job security there for them. However, you've got to put in the work. You can't just sit around and go on Facebook yeah. and things like that. But what I'd like, the last question I'd absolutely love to ask you is, I know you own your own label, Empowering Workwear by Lydia. Can you explain your mandate behind why you did this and your vision for the label? Um, sure. So basically how this all started. So I'm mostly working in technology and national security. And so fashion really isn't um, something that's in my day to day. Um, I don't, I'm not really familiar with the industry. However, I consume fashion as an individual who wears clothes. And I was really frustrated uh, with the lack of functionality in workwear. And Mm -hmm. one day, I I remember this very clearly, I was at a conference and it was after the conference and it was the networking event. I had the purse on one shoulder and then the networking drink and then the papers of the conference in my other hand. networking drink. Love it. The networking drink. (laughs) It may be what I are they going to say there was a network or something connected? I'm like, what is this weird like thing that you got? But then you said the networking drink. Got you. It was so. You, so basically, you're imagining then, you know, yeah, purse on but, left shoulder, drink yeah. in left hand, and then right arm holding papers of the conference. And um, I was talking to uh, a gentleman, and he did what normal people do at such uh, occasions. And he whipped out his business card very smoothly from his jacket pocket. And he was just holding it in front of me with his hand. And I was sitting there with all this stuff and I'm like, oh yes. Um, And so like I had to put my papers down. I was like, can you hold my networking drink? And then I put my purse down and then I'm like fumbling through the purse. And then I'm like, here's my card. And I was like, this is just not right. Drop the drink at any point. No, I, I, okay. but I, so I, that I, was, this, that was a priority. We got that. Well, I mean, this has happened on more on one more than, a, than one occasion. So it's mm-hmm. spilled on my hand before and all that. So this is definitely, I think a little bit of an issue in terms of like, why can't we just easily pull out our business card? And then I thought about it and I was like, well, I want to design my own suit in a way that um, is functional and meets my my needs, whether it's a travel business trip or whether I'm at a conference, et cetera. And it also became a little bit of a security issue because why do women always have their credit cards and their wallets, their everything is inside their purse, which is away from them. And, you know, whether you're speaking at a conference or, you know, trying to talk to people, you can't be like always eyeing your purse, you know, like, it oh my just gosh, I did that the other day and I had to keep saying to people, cause I kept getting rotated like around like the floor and I was like, I have to keep getting my bag. I have to keep getting, and it was yeah. off-putting because I wanted to focus on the conversation. I mean, exactly. no guy in that, like, no one is going to sit there and steal my handbag, and I'd be surprised if someone did. But there's this conscience of I've got to keep checking my bag, and it, yeah. you're so right about that. And I think any female listening to this would probably know, and the males probably can skip past this section. But as a female, I get that. No, I mean, like, I think it's good for the guys to listen to this because they should start paying attention and they should ask the women in their lives about their workwear and if it's comfortable. I mean, like, there's so many things to talk about, even like waists, which I think is the funnest thing um, to talk about. And so like men uh, who are listening will know, like, where is your your suit pants waistline? Uh, And it's not at their belly button. 
I can assure you it is like three to four inches below the belly button. And for women, uh, workwear pants tends to be at the belly button or right, right below the belly button. And people may say like, okay, yeah, so what? Well, so what? That means that when women sit down to eat, um, they're intestine because we actually have a human body and inside that, that, that cavity there um, is a very useful organ to process food. And that gets completely squished. So it makes it a lot harder for women to eat too uh, when you're like completely constrained. And so I ask men, I'm like, when you know we're sitting down and we're talking about these issues, I say, could you please put your finger on your belly button? And I'm like, that's where our waistline is. How do you think that would feel? And they're sitting down and they're like, oh, that doesn't seem comfortable. I'm like, no, that doesn't seem comfortable. <laughs> so just like little things like this. But um, so basically I was frustrated and one uh, bespoke suit led to another and more functionality. And I was trying them out. And then last month I finally registered the company. And um, I'm hoping to go to market this year with the first product, which is going to be a shirt. I'm going to slowly work my way to suits and um, it's all going to be made to measure. One of the problems that uh, women face is that uh, we don't all fit the mannequin proportions. It doesn't matter what the size is. And no. that has to do with our evolutionary biology, because every part of the world has evolved differently for to meet different needs of their environment. And therefore, there's no mannequin that could fit everybody's needs. And so if you're not looking good, if your like shoulders are not right, or your waist's not right, or your chest's not right, it just doesn't look right when you're sitting down. And that that's just not good. I think that women should wear clothes that fit them properly, particularly in the workplace. And um, the shirt that I'm doing first is actually going to have cufflinks because women's shirts don't tend to have cufflinks, but mm. it's a lovely way to accessorize. It's a it's a nice thing that uh, parents can pass down their cufflinks, like par uh, fathers can pass down their cufflinks to their daughters. And uh, it's another way to make a statement too. But it's not just uh, a label. It's really a purpose-driven business and uh, an impact-driven one. And I have an agenda. And my agenda has four points. So the first one is deliberate functionality that meets modern workwear needs. And two, uh, supply chain transparency, because I want the full supply chain to be transparent so I can demonstrate ethical standards from fabric sourcing to manufacturing. As I got into this, I had no idea that the fashion industry was one of the most polluting in the world. And um, three, campaign for change. I don't want to just have this label. I want the whole fashion industry to incorporate women's functionality in workwear designs. So I'm hoping to uh, have social media uh, campaigns and hope that women like you uh, will ask their favorite brand to give them pockets because I don't think this should just be a one brand that's offering this. I think that all fashion labels, whether you're, you're shopping at H&M or whether you're shopping at Gucci, everybody needs to have pockets in their workwear clothes. I mean, and that's just no, like the, absolutely the, right. the tip of the iceberg. And lastly, well, I, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Uh, lastly, the last uh, point is storytelling fashion. Uh, I want each one of my pieces to sell, to tell a story through the design of the clothing fabric. Uh, so yeah, that's it. Awesome. Well, anyone that knows me knows that I absolutely love fashion. So I definitely wanted to ask that question for myself personally. <laughs> but lastly, thank you so much, Lydia. I really do appreciate you taking the time. How can people reach out to you? Um, they can reach out to me on Twitter. My DMs are open. I'm at LKCyber and my website, LKCyber.com. And I'm on Instagram on the same handle as well. 
also on, on uh, LinkedIn and, and all of the social media. All of, all of the things. Okay, all so everyone it. should check out Lydia's males and females, males for your wives, girlfriends. Uh, should check out Lydia's uh, line because she is definitely fostering a mandate that I do believe in. Thank you so much, Lydia. I really do appreciate it. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks again for joining us. I hope you got some insights from this episode of KB Cast with me, KB. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play to get every new episode as it's released. And as always, show notes are available from kbcast.com for every single episode. We're building a community, so always love to get feedback, ideas, or questions on hello at kbcast.com. 